Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Have you ever been asked to do something that you knew you were not qualified to do? I have. And if you have, then you know how uncomfortable that can be. It feels like you're an imposter, a counterfeit, especially when there are other people involved. In fact, I don't think there are many things more awkward in this life than having to do something you're totally unqualified to do in front of other people because it feels inauthentic, right? It feels false, like, like you have no business being there. Um, I've told this story before, probably three or four years ago. I'll never forget my first day in high school band class. We walked in and sat down. The band director instructed us to take out our instruments and prepare to play the song on the sheet music that was on the stands in front of us. And I played the saxophone. So I was sitting on the row with all the other saxophonists. And there was this new kid sitting right next to me who had just moved to the area. And the rest of us, for the most part, knew each other because we'd come up through middle school band together and we'd been playing our instruments since the fifth grade. But when the band director raised his baton and we began to play, honestly, it sounded like someone was strangling a llama right next to me. It was horrible. The most painfully hideous sounds were coming out of this kid's instrument and he was terribly embarrassed and we were terribly embarrassed for him and it went on for several minutes till finally the band director stopped and said okay uh, let's try this we'll do some warm-up exercises first and so we did that for a few minutes and then the director said let's give it another go and then we began to play but this time it was even worse than before and so uh, finally mercifully after about 15 minutes into this, the band director stopped us again and he asked the boy next to me, he said, son, is there something wrong with your instrument? To which the kid replied, I don't think so, it's brand new. And so the band director said, okay, well, how long have you been playing the saxophone? And the kid literally looked at his watch and said, about 15 minutes. <laughs> he just moved to the area. He knew nothing about band, never played an instrument before in his life, but his parents thought it would be good for him to learn, so they bought him a saxophone and signed him up for the orchestra. And I'll just tell you, after the band director explained to that kid that he wouldn't be able to stay in the orchestra that year until he had some outside lessons and learned to play his instrument first, that kid was easily as uh, relieved as the rest of us to find out that he wouldn't be playing in band that year because otherwise he's being instructed to do something that he was not qualified to do. And it was terribly awkward for him and for everyone around him. And I think that's the way it is for most of us, isn't it? No one wants to have to do something, especially in front of other people, that we're not qualified to do. Well, listen, as Christians... We've been instructed by Jesus to make disciples of Christ and reach the lost by proclaiming the gospel and our testimony as it relates to the gospel. And yet most of us believe we're unqualified to do that. So we don't. We simply don't do what Jesus instructed us to do because we don't think we can. In 2012, LifeWay Research found that 80%, 80% of Americans who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. And yet, despite that conviction, 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. 61% of American Christians as of 2012 are not sharing the gospel with others. The, the Jesus Film Project's own multi-generational survey on evangelism where Christians were asked what prevented them from sharing their faith. By far and away, 
the number one answer that was given was fear. They're too afraid to share their faith because they feel too ill-equipped to share their faith. They don't believe they're qualified to tell other people about Jesus. You understand, that's the real pandemic in this country today. It's not that people are dying from illness. It's that they're dying without Jesus. And you know why? Because we're too afraid to tell them. This is one of the most successful lies ever perpetrated on the body of Christ by our enemy. This idea that you are somehow not qualified to share your faith with other people. Listen, if you're a born-again believer in and a follower of Jesus Christ, if that supernatural transformation has occurred in your life, then you tell me, who is more qualified than you to tell an unbeliever about who Jesus is and what he's done in your own life? Right, when it comes to sharing the story about who Jesus is, what he's done for you, you are the most qualified person on the planet to tell that story. Yet we've allowed ourselves to become convinced that we're not up to the task because the enemy of our souls specializes in accusing Christians of not being worthy, of not being good enough or talented enough or skilled enough or justified enough to tell our own stories to other people. And so instead of listening to the voice of the Spirit of God who says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, instead we listen to the voice of the accuser who says you can't do that. You're not good enough. You're not gifted enough, you're not worthy enough, you're not experienced enough, you're not justified enough. You have no right to tell that story to other people because you're too much of a hypocrite. You're an imposter, a counterfeit. And we listen. We listen to all those lies until we actually believe that we're not qualified to tell the one story that we are uniquely qualified to tell to the very people who so desperately need to hear it. Listen, Lucifer is referred to as Satan 52 times throughout Scripture. It's about another 30 or so times by other names. The word Satan in the ancient Hebrew, Satan, in the, in the ancient Hebrew language was originally, that wasn't even a proper name. It was a job description. It literally means accuser. That's his one job. That's all he does day and night, as we saw back in chapter 12 of Revelation. If you were here, he accuses the people of God of not being worthy or able to do what God has called and equipped us to do. And we've bought the lie hook, line, and sinker to the point that the majority of Jesus' followers refuse to tell other people about him. It's crazy. Yet that has become our normal today, right? For most of us, it's more common to go through a day without telling someone about Jesus than it is to tell someone about him every day of your life. Right? Even though telling people about Jesus should be a natural part of our daily lives, and yet in the modern church, it has become the exception. We remember the days we actually share Jesus with other people as special days because they've become so few and far between. See, when actually telling people about him should be a routine part of the rhythm of our lives from one day to the next, that it it should be so routine it flows out of us as naturally as talking about the weather or sports or politics or family or work or whatever it is you're used to talking about, things that you're not embarrassed, right, to talk about because you've experienced them firsthand, so you feel qualified to talk about them. But look, if you've experienced Jesus firsthand, then why isn't it just as natural for you to talk about him as it is to talk about the weather? It's because we've believed the lie that we're not really qualified. 
We're not good enough. We can't because of the things we've done or how we've lived our lives, how we still make a mess of things at times, right? Who am I to tell someone else about how Jesus can give them a new life when I can't even get my own life together? Listen, that's the voice of the accuser keeping you quiet. Why does he want to keep you quiet? So that he can spread a counterfeit message to the lost, an alternative to the gospel, to keep them lost. And listen, he's been doing this to great effect against God's people for a very long time to keep you from sharing the gospel story and how it relates to your story. Because sharing the gospel and what the gospel is producing in your life makes the enemy very nervous because of what happens when you combine those two stories together. Again, we saw it back in Revelation 12. There is a supernatural power when you combine the gospel story with your story. It's sort of like a chemical reaction that causes an explosion of power in the spiritual atmosphere sphere surrounding those conversations because in that moment all of the distractions that keep people from confronting the truth of God's word in their own lives are cleared away they are because the accuser is powerless against the truth of the gospel and the truth of what the gospel is doing in your own life he cannot stand up to the truth and so his only defense is to try and silence you Because again, as you proclaim those truths together, even in simple conversations, as naturally as you talk about the weather, there's a supernatural effect that reverberates throughout eternity that the enemy has no defense against. That's why Satan is conquered by the blood of the Lamb, according to Revelation 12, the gospel, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of our testimony. Right, And so today, as we'll see, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Revelation, The enemy wants to use intimidation and fear to silence you so that he can continue to spread a counterfeit message. Why? To keep lost people lost and found people quiet because he has no defense against the truth. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time. We covered the first half of chapter 13 last week. Uh, We'll start back where we left off at verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, And his number is 666. So just to review, at the end of chapter 12, we saw the woman, which is Israel, fleeing into the desert after giving birth to a son, the Messiah, because the dragon, Satan, was trying to destroy both the woman and the child. But he fails in his attempts. And so the chapter ends at verse 17, where John says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's where we, we picked the story up last week at the first half of this chapter with the dragon standing on the sand of the sea, summonsing a beast up out of the sea to make war on the saints, John says, and to conquer them. 
Okay, and this first beast is the Antichrist, who, as we discussed last week, has been active throughout history, right? Because Satan has no idea when Jesus is going to return. So he has to constantly have and has had and still has today antichrists in waiting, if you will. Individuals and authorities throughout all points in history ready to assume the counterfeit mantle of leadership given to him from Satan himself when called upon. And again, we we went through all of that last week in detail, so I'm not gonna go over all of that again today, but just as a quick review, remember the antichrist, the, the spirit of the antichrist, Uh, the one who continually blasphemes God and his people. That was the first point in our outline, if you're keeping an outline, from last Sunday. And because the Antichrist cannot create anything, okay, God is the only one who can create, right? We we don't create anything. People all the time say, I created this. No, we just fashion things out of other things that already exist, right? We don't create anything. Only God can do that. And so there's nothing original that Satan can say or do. All he can do is to try and pervert the creation and the creativity of God. Everything the Antichrist does is a counterfeit of something God has already done. And so, for instance, verse 3 says, he seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So the Antichrist falsely imitates the true Christ who was slain and then raised from the dead. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul describes the Antichrist as proclaiming himself to be God. So he tries to make himself like the Christ, even though he's nothing more than a counterfeit. Uh, also, those who worship the beast proclaim who is like the beast and who can fight against it, mimicking David's praise to God in Psalm 113 and Israel's praise to God in Exodus 15, where they declared, who is like the Lord? At the same, at the same theme, the attempt to counterfeit the truth of Christ with a lie, a perversion of the real thing continues here in this second half of the chapter that we just read as the followers of the Antichrist are marked on their hands or foreheads with the mark of the beast, which we'll come back to. But it's nothing more than a cheap imitation of the saints who are sealed by God in their foreheads in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And then as we just read, the second beast, the, the false prophet, performs great signs to try and mimic the work of Christ on the earth. He even goes as far as calling down fire from heaven, a parody of the true prophet of God, Elijah. And then he was allowed to give breath, John says, to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. It's, an, it's a simple attempt to compare himself to God breathing life into mankind. And then as we look even further ahead, there's a prostitute in John's vision in chapter 17, clothed in purple and scarlet as opposed to the bride of Christ clothed in white in chapter 19 verses 7 and 8. And then of course uh, together with the second beast in the this second half of the chapter the two beasts and the dragon form a false trinity a counterfeit of the real trinity the father son and the holy ghost. And so again as we saw last week and that's all review the antichrist blasphemes the name and authority of God by presenting a counterfeit version of both while simultaneously pursuing and martyring the believers still on the earth, while the second beast, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth, John says, by twisting everything Jesus said and did. He perverts the word of God and the works of Christ into a counterfeit message to get people to worship the first beast, who again is a counterfeit Christ, an anti-Christ. And so he sets up an image of the first beast and is given the power to bring it to life so that it even speaks and then demands that it be worshiped under the threat of death for those who refuse. And yet if that's not enough, 
in an attempt to gain the ultimate allegiance and worship of all the inhabitants of the world, the false prophet requires all people, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Of course, the Israelites bore God's law on their hands and their foreheads to signify his authority over their deeds and thoughts. It's described in Deuteronomy 6, 8. They were called phylacteries. They were these little leather boxes containing portions of the law of God, and they would wear them on the left hand and on their forehead. So it's just another counterfeit by the false prophet to mislead people away from God's truth, away from his law, away from uh, the, the truth of his word. It's a counterfeit version of that, of the truth. Uh, which, by the way, carries consequences for not following it, just like God's law. Namely, uh, John says, no one is able to buy or sell without this mark on their hands or their foreheads. And so John says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, we'll get more into what this mark may actually be in the next chapter, but for today we're going to focus a bit more on what it may have meant to John's first century readers. It's important that we always go back to the context that this was written in uh, as we decipher these scriptures, right? So in ancient times, the letters of the alphabet represented numbers. So for instance, the first nine letters uh, stood for numbers one through nine, but the second nine letters then stood for 10, 20, 30, 40, right, all the way up through 90, and so on. So it would build on each other. And yet the ancient Greek alphabet at the time didn't have enough letters for all the numbers. And so it wasn't a, a perfect correlation all the time. So they would bring in certain obsolete letters and signs back into the system. It's fairly complicated. But the point was that every letter or at least combination of letters would then correspond to a certain number, which also meant that every name, every person's name or name of an organization or an authority represented a, a particular number. And it, it was a big deal at the time to decipher a number back into a name, for instance, was a fascinating riddle because a particular comb combination of numbers could represent more than one name. And so, for instance, uh, there was a, an often quoted uh, writing on walls. It was sort of scribbled on the walls like an ancient graffiti discovered in Pompeii all over the city. And it, it read, I love her, whose number is 545. And then all the ladies had to figure out who 545 was. So the Jews at the time, as, as trivial as this sounds, were all about it. They loved to try and decipher these numbers as codes. The practice was actually known as gematria. In fact, rabbis all over the, through the centuries have delighted in discovering these sort of esoteric hidden meanings in the numbers that are found all throughout Scripture. Uh, one fascinating example, research it on your own. It is incredibly interesting. Genesis 14, 14, where the 318 men are said to have accompanied Abram to recover Lot from his captors. There are rabbis who believe the 318 men was actually just one man, Eliezer, who happened to be Abram's chief servant, the patriarch actually of Abram's, uh, Abraham's household. He was an adopted son, actually. And again, many rabbis and scholars believe it was Eliezer alone who accompanied Abram in the story because the name Eliezer in Gematria 
is 318. And interestingly, if you research that, there's actually a fair amount, quite a bit of biblical evidence to support that claim. Now, we're not going to go into all of that now. It's not the point of the chapter. And of course, we can't prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt anyway. It's conjecture, but it is fascinating. And the people in ancient times were fully invested in, in this. So there's another a cool example found in the Sibylline Oracles. It's a series of uh, ancient Greek writings that uses gematria to decipher Jesus's name in Greek as 888. Okay, and then of course here in Revelation 13, in that context, John says, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And that's what people have been doing ever since. So for example, in the first century, using gematria, the number 666 can be translated into two names. One name is beast, the other is Nero Caesar. And then according to Irenaeus in the second century, who was, by the way, a direct disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation. So Irenaeus, in his theological book Against Heresies, chapter 5, verse 30, deciphers the number of the beast in the second century as the name Latinos, which was a name at the time for the Roman Empire. You see, there have been many names of individuals and government powers over the centuries deciphered correctly from the number 666. So before we dismiss any of them, just because none of them are around today, just remember there are antichrists in every generation, right? Because the enemy doesn't know when Jesus is returning. So just because the number 666 represented Nero Caesar in the first century and the Roman Empire in the second century doesn't mean it can't represent someone entirely different in the 21st century. The point of all of this is the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of the false prophet are alive and well in every century. And their tactics haven't changed a bit. It's the only strategy our enemy has because he's not capable of creating anything new. So he simply counterfeits what God has already created. It's the oldest trick up his sleeve to contradict the word of God by misusing God's own words in a way that looks good and sounds good. It's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's what he tried to do with Jesus during his 40 days in the wilderness. It's what he tried to do with God in the courtroom scene as we saw two weeks ago in chapter 12. It's what he did through false teachers all throughout the New Testament church and it's exactly what he's still doing today all throughout Christendom because the enemy knows it's a lot easier for us to reject a complete fallacy than it is to reject a half-truth. Half-truths are always easier to spread and they're always easier to accept because they look good and sound good. The fact is any plan of the enemy against God's people always looks good and sounds good. Otherwise, no one would follow it. It almost always begins in the form of a half-truth, just enough truth to make it seem reasonable, plausible, to make it look good and sound good. And yet, if you look close enough, you'll find that the enemy's message ultimately contradicts God's word every time. And of course, we know that the enemy's conquered by the blood of the lamb, the gospel, and by the word of our testimony. Again, we, we covered that in the last chapter. But how do we resist the spirit of the false prophet today, the false teachers, particularly those who profess to be followers of Christ? Because there are many, by the way, and their message often looks good and sounds good. Well, the answer is just that. We resist. Any and every teaching that contradicts God's word or misleads God's people, no matter how irresistible it may seem. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. The Apostle Paul said, for as, uh, as for a person who stirs up division, he's talking about in the church, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Titus 3, 10 and 11. In Romans 16, 17 through 18, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and are not according to Christ. The Apostle John said, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, talking about the gospel of Christ, John says, Do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Second John 1, 10 and 11. I should have included Matthew 18, where G Jesus says to treat him as a pagan and a tax collector, worse than a dog. You understand, as Christians, we are under no obligation whatsoever to entertain false teaching. And yet in much of the modern church, we consume it like it's manna from heaven. Why do we do that? Because it looks good and sounds good. And of course, there are times when the Holy Spirit may lead us, of course, to confront an evil spirit operating in a false teacher, a heretic, the demon possessed. Yeah, but listen, by far and away, the preponderance of Scripture instructs us to stay away from those who would mislead us, teach us false doctrine, twist God's words, and by doing so create division in the church. Jesus reserved his harshest criticisms and consequences for those who brought division into the local church. And again, John said, we're to have nothing to do with them. Not even greet them, not even a, hey, Bob. Nope. So look, Anyone who is earnestly seeking the truth, I hope you understand, no matter their station in life, that person is always welcome in this church. Absolutely. If someone follows another doctrine, another religion, and wants to come here because they're genuinely seeking the truth, then of course they're welcome here with open arms. The truth is we want all who would seek the truth to come here and find it in Christ. But look, to those who come here with an agenda, specifically coming to twist God's word and mislead this family of believers into following a false gospel or a false religion, which, by the way, has happened here more than once in the last 10 years. I'm just being honest with you. They're not welcome here. Do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. But much of the church has rejected this teaching, at least in the West, where we... We devour just about every new philosophy about Jesus in the Bible that comes our way as long as it looks good and sounds good. As if the church is supposed to be a melting pot of new ideas and alternative thoughts about Jesus as long as those ideas validate our feelings about ourselves. No. We're the bride of Christ given to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5.27. Listen, it's not that we can't have new ideas or even new ways of teaching the unchanging gospel. And for what it's worth, there is a lot of new teaching and new material that comes out every year that is good, that honors the name of God and the word of God. The point is, we need to be able to discern between the two. 
Author and scholar Cornelius Plantinga says, Satan must appeal to our God-given appetite for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. From counterfeit money to phony airliner parts to the trustworthy look on the face of a con artist, evil appears in disguise, hence its treacherousness, hence the need for the Holy Spirit's gift of discernment, hence the sheer difficulty at times of distinguishing what is good from what is evil. It's so important that we learn how to identify philosophies and teachings that contradict the Word of God. Because, look, anybody can take a passage of Scripture or a selection of carefully chosen Scriptures and create an entire narrative about Jesus or the Christian faith that is contrary to what Jesus himself taught. And, of course, there are people who do that every day. And the better it looks and the better it sounds, the more Christians follow them. So how do we know? When a, when a teaching is false, especially if it's based on some truth. Well, first of all, we learn to identify what is false by studying what is true. Okay, we learn to identify false teaching not by studying every false religion and popular teaching that comes our way. No, it's by studying the Word of God, the only authentic source of truth there is. You see, it's by studying the real thing that we learn to spot a counterfeit. I'm sure you've heard the analogy before, but I'll repeat it here because it's true. Uh, John MacArthur said, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills first until they master the look of the real thing. Then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. You understand, we don't have to be experts in false teaching to know when a teaching is false. We don't have to be versed in every counterfeit message being pushed on the world today. There are too many counterfeits to study them all anyway. No, as Christians, as Christ-like people, we're called to be experts in the truth because there's only one real thing. There's only one real source of truth. And so that's what we spend our time learning. Because when you know the truth inside and out, I'm just telling you, you can spot a counterfeit from a mile away. Secondly, we learn to identify what is false by the fruit it produces. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Now listen, most fruit doesn't grow overnight. It grows over a season. And so if you encounter a new teaching, a new perspective on the gospel, a new philosophy about Jesus, an alternative way of interpreting the scriptures, whatever it is, you should take your time before deciding to entertain that teaching or that perspective or that philosophy or that alternate interpretation of the Bible. Take your time and watch the fruit that comes out of it before you decide to follow it, no matter how good it looks or sounds. Take your time and watch the fruit that it produces. Does it address the whole counsel of God or just one aspect of the scriptures? Does it build up the church or does it mock the church? Does it acknowledge our need for holiness or simply our desire for happiness? Does it honor the completed canon of scripture or does it seek to add or take away from the scriptures through new revelations given to the author or the producer of that new material? 
Does it affirm God's word as objective truth? In other words, when referencing a passage of scripture, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean? Or does it leave room in the scriptures for subjective reasoning and interpretation? In other words, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? Okay, hear me. Whenever you're studying scripture, you should never ask the question, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? Never. You should always ask the question, what does this passage of Scripture mean? Full stop. Because the Scriptures mean whatever God wrote them to mean, not whatever we would like for them to mean. Okay, when you take time to watch the fruit that a new teaching or perspective or philosophy or interpretation produces, at some point you will be able to tell whether it confirms or contradicts God's Word. And that's when we, as the church, respond because we are the harbingers and defenders of the truth. And look, I, I understand. I, I understand the whole love the sinner, hate the sin mantra that Christians use all the time, which generally is true, but that's actually not what John's teaching here. Specifically when it comes to the false teachers in his letters to the churches, he very clearly says not only to reject false teaching in the church, but he says reject the false teachers themselves. He doesn't say, be nice to them, just don't give in to their teaching, no. He doesn't say, show grace to them until they come around to our way of thinking. He doesn't say, love them until they can no longer resist the love of Christ, no. He, he says, not only don't take them in, don't even greet them. Don't talk to them, don't say hello. Which, by the way, in John's first century context, meant to utterly and completely reject someone. It was to shun them in every way. These aren't my words. This isn't my interpretation of John's words or Jesus' words or Paul's words or Peter's words. It's simply what they said. If a stranger came into the community and no one in that community showed them hospitality, no one took them into their home, that was a crystal clear message in the first century that you're not welcome here among us and we actually, we want you to leave. It sounds really harsh. You know why? Because it was really harsh. It was meant to be harsh and very clearly understood, but we struggle with this in the, our modern church culture because we're so desperate for people to like us. We want so desperately to be seen as tolerant people. We want to be accepted by the mainstream culture so much that we've not only entertained, greeted just about every imaginable perversion of the gospel that has come along in recent years by rising stars in our evangelical church culture, but we've even invited those who are teaching other versions of the gospel to come in and stay with us, to be a part of us, a part of the church family. And I'm telling you, by embracing them and their new ideas about the gospel, according to John, according to Peter, according to Paul, according to Jesus, we're taking part in their false teaching and inviting disaster on the church. This is why so many people are susceptible to false teaching in the lost days, in the last days that the, the false prophet is peddling because we're becoming conditioned to it. And so John says, don't accept them into your house. On the contrary, completely reject them. And by the way, lest we think John is just being a, an overly harsh, angry old church guy because of his own bad experiences with false teachers, let's just see again what some of the other early church leaders had to say. In uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark traveled to a city called Salamis on the coast of Cyprus. And while teaching in the synagogue there and around the island, they encounter a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus who opposed the apostles and his own teaching, the gospel. And here's what Luke says happened next. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So 
we know this wasn't just Paul being an angry old religious church guy because Luke writes that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul do when he's full of the Holy Spirit? It says he looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. It's Acts 13, 10 and 12. That makes John's command for us to shun false teachers seem mild in comparison. Peter warns us as well. He wrote to the church. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 2 Peter 2, 1-3. Man, Peter, why so harsh? Because of what is at stake? The church itself, because as soon as we begin following many different versions of the gospel within the church, that is the moment we begin to divide, which is precisely what we see in the American church today. The church was never meant to be a melting pot of ideas and alternate gospels where it's safe or okay to manipulate the message of Christ until it fits our personal preferences, right, or the inclinations of pop culture at any given point in history. No, the church was meant to be the keeper and harbinger of truth, and there's only one truth, the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is a counterfeit. And listen, anyone who comes to you with a counterfeit gospel is an imposter, a fake, a false prophet, and do you understand the only way for this counterfeit message to get out, for this counterfeit plan to work, Christians only have to be silent, too intimidated, too afraid to speak the truth so the enemy's counterfeit message can be heard. So I'm asking you, do you share the gospel? His story and how it has transformed your story. Do you share that with lost people or are you too afraid to share your faith because you think you're too ill-equipped to share it, not qualified to tell other people about Jesus? I'm telling you, that's the real pandemic in this world, not people dying from illness, people dying without Jesus because we are too afraid to tell them. It's one of the most successful counterfeits ever perpetrated on the body of Christ. This idea that you are somehow not qualified to share your faith with other people. Listen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, who is more qualified than you to tell an unbeliever about who Jesus is and what he's done in your own life? Because look, when it, when it comes to sharing the story about what Jesus has done for you, you are the most qualified person on the planet to tell that story. And besides, if you don't tell them, who will? Let's pray.